So Mike couldn't be here this morning, so unfortunately you stuck with me. Uh, but I'm excited about the message I'm here to give you today. So if you don't mind, why don't we start with the scripture? So grab the Bible, open that sucker up, and we're going to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. We're actually going to go back to it a couple of times. So... Uh, you have, if you're pulling the black-bound Bible, you have the ESV version of the Bible, which is a fantastic translation uh, that handles the text wonderfully. It's also not the translation that I have at home and that I sculpt my sermon from. So I've got that, and I'm going to read both. First, read along with me, chapter 4, 2 Timothy, verses 1 through 7. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and extort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from the listening to the truth, and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Okay, so there's our passage for this morning. Now, I'm going to ask you not to look at the Bible, and I want you to hear the other version. Not because it's a better version. In fact, it's almost exactly the same. There's just a few word choices that are different. But when you look at two separate translations of a language that is not inherently conductive to English, you have a better understanding of what the original intent probably was. So those slight differences, those slight word choices, helps us grasp the true meaning of what Paul's trying to say to Timothy. So here it is, and I'll be a little quicker in my reading. Uh, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message. Be persistent, whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to miss. As for you, always be sober and urge suffering through the work of an evangelist. Carry out your ministry fully. As for me, I have already been poured out as a libation. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, quick note. Um... You may have heard the word sober there. It does not mean what we typically tend it to mean. And as someone who celebrated Cinco de Mayo with a margarita in my hand, <laughs> let me assure you that's okay. The word choice here is meant to say serious. Do not be uh, slap happy in your application of the message. Treat it with its solemnness and the weight that it should have every time you deal with it. Never to be taken lightly. So that's why they use the word sober and translate it there, just to clarify. 
Um, all right, so now that we've heard the passage, I'm going to talk, and we're going to come back and we're going to reference this a few times. Uh, so I was born in Houston, but most of my childhood didn't happen here. You see, my father was in the oil and gas industry, and in about 1982, 1983, that was not the best industry to be in here in Houston. So he went and found a job, thank you God, and picked up his family and moved away to exciting, adventurous Amarillo, Texas. <laughs> All right, so some of you have been there. Um, for those of you who aren't chuckling, Amarillo is neither exciting nor adventurous. But it was a fantastic place to be a kid, especially at the elementary school age, uh, which is when I was there. Uh, it snows in the winter, it's hot in the summer, but not humid, moist, scuba gear required Houston hot. Um, we had 10 kids all on one block of all different ages. And we had snowball fights, we played football in the street, every door was open, every housewife and mother fed us, some of us more than once. I mean, it was just kind of a, all the doors were open, everybody ran wild, and it was a fantastic childhood to have. It really was, in a lot of ways. Um, however, what was interesting there is, in Amarillo, everybody was Christian. Everybody was Christian. Now, were they really? No. No, no. Amarillo has agnostics. They have atheists. They have Jews. They have Buddhists. There may even be like a closet Wiccan or two that was hiding under the floorboards. And they may, those people may have even been on my street. That could have been the parents of some of the kids that I played with. But the assumption, the general understanding of anybody you met in Amarillo, at least if you were eight or nine like me, was that they were Christian. It wasn't even worthy of mention. It was not discussed. I am Christian. Yeah. And water's wet and fire's hot. Like we talked about some obvious things. It was just not, it didn't need to have any weight or attention placed on it. Um, but here's the thing. If we're not if we don't need to say it, how much value is there? What does that phrase really mean if it's something that's applied universally as a default? Now, um, it wasn't just, uh, uh, there were some differences, you know. I mean, my family went to the Methodist church, and there were other people that went to the Methodist church. And then other kids and families went to other Churches. I couldn't tell you what the denominations are today because, again, eight or nine. Uh, I was just concerned with my own situation. Um, but they have them. I'm sure Amarillo has a standard assortment of Christian denominations just kind of liberally sprinkled throughout town. Uh, and there were, the, there were the families and the kids. They only went to church on Easter, right? And there was the families and kids that never went to church at all or never spoke about going to church. But the assumption for all of those people you're Christians. Everybody's Christian. Everybody's Christian. whole world is Christian. Right? My grandparents live in small town to Quincy, Louisiana. And when I mean small town, I mean, I mean, when we're talking about population, we're really referring to the graveyard, not the people who are living in town. Same thing. Everybody's Christian. Right? My other grandparents lived in the woods out in Magnolia back when there were woods in Magnolia. Um, and it wasn't all developed. Same situation. Everybody. Always, just the default, everybody you meet is going to be a Christian. This is a part of everybody's life. Everybody was raised this way. 
scientists have recently discovered that mankind did not see the color blue until relatively modern times. Yeah, I know, that blew, that blew my mind when I heard it. That's confusing, right? But think about this, and this is true, this is it. And if you find this interesting, or you're like, that man is crazy, Google it. Google it. Google <laughs> color blue modern times. Uh, but ancient Greek, Chinese, Hebrew, Japanese, none of them have a word for blue. Not only do they not have the word for blue, blue was not a concept. The color wheel stops at yellow. Red, yellow, we're done. We've got greens, we've got purples, blue, no. So the gist of why that may have been, what the speculation is, is blue doesn't really occur in nature very much. There's not many blue rocks. There's no blue animals running around northern Africa. Um, it's just not something that's really encountered. You know where you find blue? It's the sky. It's the constant, perpetual background detail that never changes. So it is not worthy notice. It has no importance. Okay? Who here has ever been in Mike's office? Raise your hand. Okay. Been in Mike's office, right? Okay. Uh, think about Mike's office. You walk in, there's a desk, there's clutter, always. There are a couple of large bookcases against the wall that are about to give up the fight. Uh, there's a big poofy sofa that we don't want to know where it came from and what's happened. Um, there's a whiteboard on the wall with scribblings. There's the big glass door. What color are the walls? Raise your hand if you know what the color of the walls are in Mike's office. Okay. Right. I see two hands raised, one of whom's already noted for being very observant, the other one who helped make the decision on what color to paint those walls, so she's cheating. Um, but there's far fewer hands raised than there was before. Those walls are light, pale blue. Those walls are light, pale blue. And you know why you don't know? Not because you don't have a concept of the color blue. It's because that is not an important detail. That is not important to you. It is part of the background. Nobody keeps a pot of St. Augustine grass on the plant stand in the living room. No one cares. Okay? No, we want the rose. We want the brilliant red. Why? Because it stands out against the field of green and brown. The other side of that coin is not always positive. Okay? Uh, I remember as a child being scolded more than once because there were mud streaks on the tile floor. Okay? Mom did not care about the color of the tile. But that piece that did not, it was different, that stood out. That's what we care about. That's what we saw. So, in a place like what I'm describing with Amarillo, but everybody's Christian, why does it mean it? So it keeps going here. Um, we did move to Sugarland, uh, but before that, in Amarillo, I never, and I'm serious, I never used the phrase, I am Christian. Remember, we didn't have to talk about it, everybody's Christian. So as a kid, you never had me say, I'm a Christian. The first time I used that phrase is when we moved back to Sugarland, And I'm a teenager. And we move into a new Methodist church, which is big. And then I have to say, 
I am a Christian. But you know what? Those words are easy. Those words were easy to say. You want to know why? Because those words were simply an assurance. Yeah, I'm on the team. We're cool. I'm part of the majority. I am one of you. I am a Christian, too. I belong here. And in high school, I was first exposed to people who were aggressively not Christians. First time I met somebody my own age, or any age, who was like, no, I'm definitely not. I am firmly and empirically not a Christian. And even then, at the age of 17, I knew what was going on. We're rebelling. We're rebelling against mom and dad. It's like dyeing our hair a funky color. I am an independent, completely on my own person. Now give me my allowance and let me borrow the car. <laughs> That's what was going on in that situation. Uh, but, again, it was more of a situation of everyone is Christian until they say otherwise. I went to a Catholic university. Okay? And there was a whole issue with me being Protestant and then being Catholic. So it wasn't that bad of an issue. But everybody you met, you assumed on University of St. Thomas campus, all Christians until they make a point to let me know, no, actually, I'm not. Okay? Now, I did something that changed all that. It wasn't intentional. It was a byproduct. It happened. I moved outside of the Bible Belt. I moved to Los Angeles, land of filthy hippies and wanton hedonism. Or at least if you listen to the old men back here in the Bible Belt, as they were more than happy to tell me before I moved. And you know what? The honest truth is, yeah, I met some hippie-like individuals that probably could have been introduced to soap and shampoo on a more regular basis. And I saw some things that were wanton and undoubtedly hedonistic while I was out there. That is true. But the majority of people in Los Angeles are just that. People. Just like people here. They have jobs, they have families, they fall in love, they don't, they care, they don't care. Same soap operas, same soap operas. We're people. Okay? But there was a difference. And I found that difference out pretty fast. In L.A., and maybe this was just my experience, but I met a good thousand people in L.A., so I feel comfortable being, being firm about this. In L.A., the assumption is you are not Christian. That is the default assumption. Because to be Christian is a bad thing. So, why is that a bad thing? Because the majority of people there are indifferently agnostic. Indifferently agnostic. But if you're a Christian, what you're doing is you are saying, I am Kirk Cameron. Okay? Now, in the first service, I used Jerry Falwell. So, if any of you know who he is, I actually like Jerry better as an example here. But, um, I didn't know if anybody would know who Jerry Falwell is. Age difference, you see. But, the idea is, is there's no middle ground for them. There's no middle ground. If you say, I am a Christian, what they are hearing out there, in my experience, is I bomb abortion clinics, I hate gay people, I deny evolution, I beat my wife, and I spend most of my time self-righteously telling everyone I meet that they're going to burn in hell. That is what is assumed 
when I say I'm a Christian. So, all of a sudden, this is a phrase that means something when it didn't before. And I found myself in parties and in groups of people who were my friends, people I cared about, and feeling the need, the call, the movement of the Spirit to say, I'm a Christian. What you guys are talking about, you're talking about me. You're talking about me. And that was a risky thing to do. Because it was not perceived positively at all. And that makes that phrase so much more important. And then when I'm at the Methodist church back in Sugarland, and the teenagers saying, yeah, I'm on the team. I'm on the team. I'm a Christian too. Um, now, I did, in fact, say in those situations in L.A., by the way, you know what, I am a Christian. I'm ashamed to say I didn't do it every time. Sometimes I just, you know what, I'm just going to let this go without comment. But I did, in fact, make an effort to say I am a Christian. Now, I was standing up for Christianity to some extent. Because not only did I say I'm a Christian, it was followed by, no, we're not all like that. I'm not a particularly a hateful person. I would hope everybody would agree. Most Christians aren't. I've never burned Carl Sagan in effigy. In fact, I've read a couple of his books. Okay? We're not all on that same crazy page. Westboro Baptist Church is not our standard of normalcy for Christianity. You might find that they look mostly like me and talk and think like me rather than the crazy people you see on TV. And as a defender of Christianity, I failed miserably. Failed miserably. Oh, I could convince them that I was a cool guy. I was rational. I could talk about these things. But all that did was let them feel that I was sadly delusional about what my faith really was. That I was the fabled unicorn, the, the mythical Christian who was rational, who was not uh, uh, foaming at the mouth. So I failed as a defender of Christianity, but uh, I still took that risk every time. I still said I am a Christian. As often as I felt like I had to. Then I moved back to Houston. I married a wonderful woman who fixed many of the things wrong with me along the way. Um, not all, not all. We've got to give her something to pray about every Sunday. Um, but, uh, and we decided to have a family. And my parents are here and her parents are here and they're five miles apart. And so we care so much about family as a couple. It's very important to us. And so is free babysitting. So we moved back to Sugarland. <laughs> we moved back to Sugarland. Here we are. But here's the thing. I moved back to a new situation. I moved back to a new situation. I have a deeper relationship with Christ when I moved back. I really did. And I would hope that five years from now I can look back on this morning and what I've said to you and make the same statement. That I have a deeper relationship with Christ five years from now than I do today. That is my hope. But I, I was in a different relationship with God when I moved back. 
And I moved to a neighborhood where most of my neighbors are not assumed to be Christian. My boy, Jonah, my oldest boy, eight years old, about to be nine, his best friend is a Muslim. They live two doors down. His dad just went on a pilgrimage to Mecca and just got back. I'm friends with this man. I like this guy. We talk. Okay? He's, he's a good guy for the most part. But both Jonah and Micah have a decent number of kids in their classes at school, second grade, first grade, who are Muslim and who are Hindu. Okay? And for the most part, they're all good people. They're kids, kids are brats, no matter who their parents were. I mean, that's just life. But um, I find myself having conversations with my kids that I never had with my parents. Things are coming up that never would have occurred in Amarillo or the Quincy, Louisiana in the 80s for me. And that's really kind of a good thing. It's really kind of a good thing because Christianity clearly means something to Jonah and Micah. Where back when it was assumed for everybody in Amarillo, I don't think it did. I don't think it did. So conversations I have to have with my kids now are everything from simple to um, why does Donish's dad pray on a little rug? Dad, I see you pray all the time. No little rug. What's the deal? Um, well, we can talk about that. Um, why doesn't Habib eat pork? These are real people, by the way. These are real names of real people who my kids work with, and that's fine. That's great. It's fantastic. Why doesn't Habib eat pork? We eat pork. I said, yes, son. We're, this is southern, southern uh, United States, Texas. Pork's a staple here. This is what we eat. <laughs> just, that's just it. Um, but we can talk about why Habib doesn't. Sure. We can, we can have that conversation. Now, some of these conversations are a little harder than that, though. If Christmas is a Christian holiday, why did Santa Claus come to everybody's house this year? Donish isn't Christian. Santa came to his house. It's a little bit more of an uncomfortable conversation. For a variety of reasons. Uh, and then... I will get asked questions that I would struggle having with you, much less with my eight-year-old kid. Is Allah the same God as our God? That's a hard question to answer with anyone. And I have to look at my child, and I have to tell him no. No, he's not. Comes out of the same tradition. Shares many of the same stories. But no. Allah is not the same God that we worship. Nor is our God theirs. The other side of this coin, though, is I get to talk to Donish's dad, like I said. Went on pilgrimage. Um, I get to ask him about that, and I did. Hey, I heard you just got back from the pilgrimage to Mecca. What was that like? What did you do? Tell me about that. And he's delighted to tell me, because this was a monumental event in his life. It really is. That is, a, that is a huge deal. 
if you're not aware, in the life of uh, the Islamic faith. So he went to Mecca and he's happy to tell me about it. He's telling me all about it and all the things and everything. And he ends it and immediately says, how about you? Do Christians go on pilgrimages? And we get to talk about that. And I get to tell him about that. And then he gets with the other guy on the street who's also a Pakistani Muslim. And they come and they come up to me in the yard. I'm trimming at the bushes, hoping they look vaguely like a shape by the time I'm done. And, and they approach me and they say, hey, we, we, we can't figure something out. Because they're both recent, recent transplants in the past couple of years. All right, well, what's up, what's up? Halloween, is this a Christian holiday? Why do, why do they do this here? Well, let me put down my shears. <laughs> and we can talk about Halloween for a little bit. <laughs> No, it is not a Christian holiday, but it's a cultural one, and here's the deal. Um, when I tell them I am a Christian, when I say that to them, that's received differently than it was received in L.A. That means something to them, and what that means to them is not what they see on TV. It's not West Barrow Baptist Church. It's 1,500 years of history. It's Christianity as they know it back in Pakistan. I'm making a statement. That statement has risk. That statement has obligation. All right. So continuing on, let's go back to 2 Timothy. You don't have to look at it. I'll read it to you. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 again real fast. Uh, the beginning... I charge you in the presence of God, Christ Jesus. What this is, is this means that Paul's about to say something really important. Because he's calling on God and Christ to formally witness what he's about to say. I say lots of stuff. And I think God backs up everything I say. But this statement, we're going to stop and get notarized by the Holy Ghost. Okay? Because we want, I want you, Timothy, to know this is important. And what does he say? He says, uh, what does he say? Uh, he says, proclaim the message. <coughs> Be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up a sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to miss. So why, why did I hit those words particularly? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, the hardest thing for me about this passage, this instruction, is not being in L.A. and having to say, I'm a Christian. That was risky. That was uncomfortable. That wasn't the hardest part about this. Let me tell you what the hardest part about this instruction is. It is... When I am in a room full of Christians, and I have to say, I don't believe that. I don't think that that's what this means. I think this is clear in a way that doesn't seem to be clear to you. I don't think that this is what Christ intended. With this belief, this position, this that is a terrifying 
fail to do. And the reason why it's terrifying is because when I'm in Amarillo and I am a Christian means nothing, and it's assumed, or when I'm in L.A. and I am a Christian means something socially crippling, or when I'm talking to my friends down the street who are of another faith and I say I am a Christian, in every instance, my identity is secure. I am a Christian. That is who I am. My kids sort their superheroes. DC hero, DC hero, Marvel hero, Avenger, villain, cowboys in this bucket, Indians in that bucket. Well, if we're all action figures, I'm getting sorted in the Christian bucket. That is my idea. My identity. Right? But if you say something like this in a room full of Christians, it's terrifying because they might, as a group, try to take that identity from you. You have gone against the pack. You have called us out on something, and we may cast you from the ranks. That's terrifying. But it is what we are called to do. It is what we are called to do, and if you are in a group of true Christians. They may not agree with you. You may not sway them. But they should respect you. They should listen to you as a brother and a sister in Christ. And if they don't, that's another thing for you to dwell on. And hopefully for them to dwell on as well. You see, the Amarillo of my youth, that scenario I'm painting, everyone is assumed to be Christian. It's the default setting. That's too safe for us. That is too safe for us. It's both a safety blanket that stifles our growth with God. And it is an enormous pressure to not challenge the group. Even when the consensus makes us uncomfortable. Even when the group's moving in a direction that we don't feel is right. Uh... If you're going to be a Christian like Christ expects and Paul describes, you are not allowed to be content. You cannot find a place that is comfortable and secure and simply stay. Now, that doesn't mean you can't feel safe. It doesn't mean that belonging to a church where everybody more or less goes along the same idea, like this fantastic church, um, is something that should be avoided. Not at all. But if you don't feel uncomfortable every now and then saying, I am a Christian, maybe you need to find the places where you are comfortable and make sure you say it. So... I am going to challenge you. All work, everybody's favorite. Um, I'm going to issue three challenges. You can do all three, or you can do just one or two. But if you're going to do just one, please pick the one that is the most uncomfortable for you. Pick the one that's going to be hardest for you to do. Because usually, when you're talking about a matter of faith, the hardest option it is usually the right one. All right, so here's my three challenges. Okay, number one, if you have doubts 
If you have questions or concerns about scripture, your faith, or what everyone around you seems to believe, that you do not, my challenge to you is go to one of our group meetings here at the church and throw it all on the table. So if you're a lady, there's peeling back the layers every month. There's a women's Bible, uh, or book study rather. Uh, Julie Holiday's nodding. She can help you figure that out. There's opportunities there. If you're a guy, we do a monthly thing at my house. Um, Mike organizes regular men's night outs. We've got a fantastic camping trip that happens every fall. But the key word here is group. If you're going to meet this challenge, you're not going to pull Mike or Wes aside into the closet, shut the door, flip the lights off, make sure the covers are drawn, and then tell them what's bothering you. Or tell, you, tell them about your questions or your concerns or your thoughts. Group. Throw it out there. See how your fellow Christians, how your brothers and sisters respond. Okay, challenge number two. This one's kind of for me. If you look back at 2 Timothy, the passage for the time has come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. A lot of really good learned Christians, okay, guys like me, I read a lot about Christ and God and theology, fall into the same trap. Guilty. Fall into the same trap. And that is we only read what we know we already agree with. You can have a whole wall of books of theology and only see three authors. Because you found the guy and he resonated with you on book one and now we're just going to buy everything he writes and not worry about the rest of it. So my challenge to you is to go out and find a book that you know before you even crack it open, you are not going to agree with what's in this book and make it be a book about God. Okay? So go find a critical book about the Bible written by an atheist. There is a ton you can find. If you are an open-minded, progressive Christian who reads guys like Marcus Borg, okay, which is an author that's been presented here at the church once or twice, go read How to Be Born Again by Billy Graham. Or something like it. If, you know, Billy Graham's your cup of tea. I actually like reading Billy Graham quite a bit. Um, if that's your cup of tea and you're more conservative-minded, maybe a little bit more traditional, go read Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism by John Selby Spong. And have fun with that. And also, if you're married, and you can have your spouse talk to my wife, she gives excellent advice on how to deal with a husband who will scream in outrage at the book he's reading? Because that happens in my home frequently. But uh, finally, challenge number three. Think about everyone in your life who you respect, care for, or work with regularly. And consider the one person in your life whose relationship you cannot put in jeopardy. That you would feel the most uncomfortable going to and saying, you know what? I'm a Christian, and I don't think we've ever talked about that before. And had that conversation. Those are my three challenges to you. Um, we are blessed here to be in an amazing church. 
that is supportive in a lot of ways. And I would hope that here you all would feel comfortable with who you are and what you believe, even if it doesn't exactly line up with the person who's sitting next to you on every single line. Okay? That's okay. We here at FC3, we're trying to be a specific kind of community, a family. And in families, people don't always see eye to eye. People don't always even get along. But they're united by a common bond. Typical family united bond is blood. Well, it's blood here too. And we're going to partake of that in a moment. It's also beliefs. We all are commonly bound by, in what in my opinion are, a faith in God, hope for the future, and love for the Lord. The church has a mission statement. It's on the wall. Mission statements are great for organizations. They are not unifying bonds. What unifies us as a group or a family cannot be a task. It has to be an identity. Um, I hope that I and each of you, when we are facing the end of our days, like Paul is when he's writing his second letter to Timothy, my hope for all of us, me too, especially me, is that we can sit there on our deathbed and say exactly what Paul says in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept Here's the thing about being a good person and fighting good fights. You do not fight the fights you're going to win. You fight the fights that need to be fought. Win or lose. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for each other. We thank you so much for your scriptures. And we thank you so much for your actions in our lives. Every one of us is sinful. Every one of us has failed you. Please never let us give up. Please never let us stop seeking you. Please help us to be the people that you want us to be. We love you dearly.